it's just impossible for me to believe that there's this set of perfect rules that if you follow them, you will achieve this moral maxima and we will get closer to utopia. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? Are you having a good week? Are you all ready for Christmas? I'm ready for the break. I'm ready to get my family over. I'm ready to eat some good food, open some presents and chill out. It's been a long year. It's been quite a turbulent year. A lot going on in the world of Bitcoin. A lot going on in the world of crypto. What a weird year. It's tough to be a Bitcoiner, right? Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview I've wanted to make for a while. I've got Mike Brock on the show. Now, Mike and I have an interesting relationship on Twitter because we align on a lot of issues. We're both Bitcoiners, but we align less with the libertarians. We, we're both people who support democracy, which I know is being challenged at the moment right now. I know we're not getting the best service from our governments at the moment. But Mike is somebody who I've kind of followed his tweets. He's kind of followed mine. And, and there's a few things we kind of align on. Now, Mike calls himself a reformed libertarian. He used to be heavily involved in the libertarian movement. And so in this show, I wanted to get Mike on. I wanted to uh, understand where his skepticism now comes from with libertarianism. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing libertarianism too much, because actually, I've learned so much from libertarians. Actually, I also agree fundamentally with a lot of the things they say. I mean, I've had Stefan Levera on the show multiple times. I kind of fundamentally agree with a lot of what he says. It's always been the application of libertarianism, which I have struggled with. So, yes, I've had the libertarians on the show. Now it's time to get Mike on. Get Mike to explain to me his kind of antithesis of libertarianism. So please do send me your feedback. I know you will. I know you'll be jumping on YouTube to tell me why I'm wrong and I'm an idiot. And I look forward to that because I like those comments the most. Um, but if you do want to email me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I will get back to you as soon as possible. All right. Enjoy your weekend and I will see you all next week. It's great to get you on, Mike. Um, for people who don't know you, you should introduce yourself. Well, I'm Mike Brock. Um, obviously, I'm sure it's on the the video or the, the or the podcast description. Um, I lead our newest business unit at TBD. I blog at block <laughs> TBD at block. <laughs> sorry, yeah, oh, yes, uh, no, sorry. At block, I lead our newest business unit TBD, um, which is focused on building on ramps and off ramps from what I like to call the old old money to new money. New money being Bitcoin and stable coins for creating more financial access all around the world. That's sort of the most pithy way of putting it. In practice, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build open protocols on open standards uh, using open source software in order to solve a lot of the challenges that we see with using these technologies on a day-to-day -day basis. I think Bitcoin solves the, the layer one problem really, really well, but there's a whole series of issues that we need to address if we're gonna have a more decentralized economy. I, identity is, is a big, big piece of that. And so we're really focused on, on building decentralized identity as a, as, a, as a tool in order to build more decentralized applications and also allow people to own their own identity on the internet as opposed to giving it up to these like hyperscale platforms that are increasingly being the gatekeepers to our digital life. So that's that's what we're working on. Um, we think it's critical to Bitcoin adoption long-term and that's that's what I'm working on. I've been at the company for over nine years. Uh, I, was one of, I was one of the the early team members on Cash App. I was the one who brought Bitcoin into Cash App um, I also set up our, our Square Crypto division, now known as Spiral. 
most of the things we've we've done at the company with Bitcoin, um, I've had some some hand in. So, so that's, we, that's me. You know a couple of my friends, Miles Suter. I know Miles really. I hired Miles. Yeah, I brought Miles to the company. And uh, you also know somebody who's played for my football team. Who's that? Connor Ocus. I, so I've never, I don't think I've ever uh, spoken to him directly, uh, but I, I know of him. Yeah, he's at yeah. Spiral. He's yeah. at Spiral, yeah. Um, well, like, as I said, one of the reasons I want, wanted to get you on is you can't help, well, you can help in Bitcoin to ignore, you know, not get involved in politics. Plenty mm-hmm. of people do. They're like, I don't want to get involved in this shit. I'm about Bitcoin. That's my political affiliation. Everything else is noise. I can't. I get sucked into political discussions. Uh, and there is a... A substantial percentage of people in Bitcoin who are Austrian economists yes. or fans of fans of Austrian economics, who I'm are very li- much not a fan. Yeah, it's in your it's in your profile, um, and who are libertarians, and obviously I've had a lot of those people on my show. Yeah, um, done a number of interviews with people like Eric Voorhees, and he's been very good at challenging my ideas with regards to the state. Um, and I've been sucked down the libertarian rabbit hole a few times, but I never can get there. I've yeah. never been able to fully rationalize the kind of end position these people want. And so I've kind of felt a lot on my own sometimes with this because it's quite a rare position to be in. But like I said, I discovered you. I can't remember how, but um, when I did, I started to realize there's somebody else who's who probably can probably do a better job of rationalizing what I'm thinking <laughs> than I am. But at the same time, I'm going to push back. Um, but you did... It's quite recently I was in a thread with you where you referred to yourself as a reformed libertarian. Yeah, I, I call myself post-libertarian. Okay. Um, it's, I think it's a pretty common term. Um, I know I have quite a few friends that, that would use that label as well. So when I was in my early 20s, I was, I was deep within the libertarian movement in Canada. Um, most of my friends were libertarian. You know, I was part of a, um, you know, a, a cabal of of, of friends. Some, some of them went on to work at places like the Institute for Humane Studies and the Cato Institute. Um, and I still, I still have a lot of those, those connections today. Um, a lot of them are like me. They sort of left libertarianism. Some of them, some of them followed interesting paths. There was like this weird in-between movement for the post-libertarians. It was called bleeding heart libertarianism or like BHL. And it was really, some, some people called it liberalitarianism. It was an attempt to reconcile the fact that libertarians, particularly in the the Cold War period, really got in bed with conservatives in the United States. And it it was it was sort of this like this merit, this weird shotgun marriage that was I don't want to say it was forced on people, but it was rationalized due to the to, to the threat of communism around the world. And and libertarians were really worried about um, communism, uh, the Soviet Union, you know, Marxist influences, and they saw conservatives as as sort of like a a natural ally, and this led to this this fusionism where liber- libertarians and conservatives got together and and created this sort of weird mess that we see today in in the United States uh, with libertarianism and conservatism, and I think there I think especially around the 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 two thousand eight financial crisis which was really when I was kind of coming of age and I was still enmeshed in the libertarian movement, it, that was when there was a lot of conversations starting to happen, you know, among many libertarians of like, why, why are we, why are we friends with conservatives again? Like what, like, do, do, do we really share the same goals here? 
Um, conservatives are generally pro-war. Um, they want to lock nonviolent drug offenders up, send them to jail. Um, they're opposed to immigration. Aren't we all, aren't we for, like, aren't we against war? Aren't we for immigration? Like, do we really believe that these invisible lines drawn on maps should define whether or not somebody um, can move around freely and, and engage in free association? So there was this like real, I think, awakening that happened. And I think that that's kind of what le led to m at least my post-libertarian journey. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't, like, I think, I think I would say today, I, I'm still in that tradition in the sense that, you know, I, I, I believe in the liberal idea. I believe in I'm like I I I'm I'm a liberal of, of the in the classical tradition and I love that philosophy and I'm still a big defender of it and, and I'm you know and I and I beat that drum. But I think there's something about what we call libertarianism that is often very reductionist and very uh suspicious uh morally and ethically sometimes. Um and so I I point that out, and I and I am a um, someone who who really wants to to to, to highlight those contradictions. Um, Austrian economics, which which is often very closely associated with libertarianism, and I'm and I I once considered myself an Austrian myself, but as I matured and I started to have a more healthy appreciation for the complexity of the world, I started to see that there was. There was there are serious blind spots in in that way of thinking about the economy and money um, that I don't think fully and truly capture uh, the complexity of of these things. Um, I think I mean we can get into that. I think it's a really fascinating discussion. I, I <laughs> I'm happy to go all the way down that rabbit hole and explain in excruciating detail why I think Austrians uh, economists are are getting it wrong. Um, but the short and sweet of it is that. Um, I, I don't believe that there is like a, um, a, a true equal, equilibrium to be found in a market, right? I mean, obviously supply and demand are real. I would, never I would never debate that. But like human society is complicated. You know, what, what makes us happy is, is complicated. It's hard to quantify. Um, we're, we're always moving. We're always chasing something new. Um, we're running away from some things. And it's just um, impossible to believe, impossible for me to believe that there's this set of perfect rules that if you follow them, you will achieve this moral maxima and we will get closer to utopia, I guess, um, if we just do that. And, I, and I, I doubt that very much. And I think Austrians sometimes are a little bit too utopian in the way they, they believe that if you subscribe to these like very consistent, self-consistent principles, say like in the Rothbardian sense, referring to Murray Rothbard, that what you'll get is something which is closer to the ideals of, of freedom and liberty. Um, and, and there's something suspicious there, which is these, like, there's, there's normative moral claims at the bottom of what, what, what they're saying. And, and they're not really honest about it. Um, I mean, some people are, but there's like there's there's this argument of natural laws um, underneath a lot of those claims that are very suspicious. Like, are are those the real natural laws? Like, did it did it really take until the 20th century for some guy named Murray Rothbard to discover that there were these like laws in the universe that were written in the stars that we just like suddenly discovered and like, oh, this is how we should live. 
like laissez-faire economics were like the and and money and all these like actually relatively advanced social concepts were what we truly needed to achieve like our our moral and ethical destiny. Like that can't be true. Like humans have been on this planet for, you know, modern humans anyway has been on this planet for at least 60,000 years. Um, our close ancestors, another 200,000 years, you know, primates, like several million. Like, this can't be true. It can't be true. So, um, like, so I, 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 I'm, I'm really suspicious of, 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 of that way of thinking about the world. What do you think the attraction is to people who claim to be or claim that they're libertarians? I think most, I think most young people um, come to libertarianism for the same reason that a lot of young people come to socialism. Um, and a lot of these sorts of uh, really utopian ideologies because you're young and you're idealistic and you want to believe that there's easy answers and there's not, there's no easy answers. I kind of tend to, whenever I sit down with a libertarian, discuss their ideas, I always tend to agree with what they're saying. I think morally they're yeah. usually pretty right. Yeah, It's when I start to run through the thought experiments of, how you coordinate a society of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people mm -hmm. and how that may play out, that's when I start to have questions and start to struggle. Um, I um, a while back interviewed Scott Horton and he'd written an article where he said he doesn't believe in the big red button to get rid of government. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. But what I would worry about is that humans will always coordinate and if you were to remove the state, something else would replace it that could yeah. be worse and... We have, we, you know, you're a fan of modern liberal... Uh, well, what is the state? Define the state for me. I mean... Tell me what the state is. The state to me is a, uh, a set of borders that defines a country and within that there is a group of people who are elected to run it. Or yeah. maybe not even elected to run it. So uh, let, let's, let's like play a little game here, right? Yeah. Like I want to, like let's steal man, you know, like a, a purely voluntarist society. Um, from the ground up. Let's just let's just do the whole thought experiment today, and then see it, and see if we can um, use purely anarcho-capitalist, uh, you know, rules. We'll we'll stick to the non-aggression principle, contractualism, voluntarism. And we'll try to work our way up and see and see where we get here. So, but, but you've already hit one of my first <laughs> difficult points: is that. Everyone has to adhere to the non-aggression principle, and no, let's, humans let's, won't. Let's give them credit. Let's let, no. Let's 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 uh, let let's suspend disbelief, and then and then try to see if we can um, if these ideals can survive. Like um, so, I, I'm Bob. So Bob uh, comes along, and Bob um, sees there's this really really beautiful island um, that he wants to wants to buy. I don't know. Maybe it's like a a thousand square miles of island. Um, so he, he, and, and let's just assume for the sake of argument that the island is properly owned. I understand that the proper way in which to obtain the, the morally pure initial conditions to, uh, own land is through homesteading. And so the, 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 the island was properly homesteaded and the, and the, the successor owners were all properly transferred prop the, the rights to the island. There's no, there's no issues of the island being stolen or, or there's no war or anything like that that happened. Um, and so Bob is, is engages in a clean purchase of the island. Um, he owns it outright. We've, it's completely, uh, completely free and open transaction. Bob moves on to the island and um, decides, you know what? I, I think it, this is, it's really boring to live here by myself. So what I'm going to do is 
I'm going to divide my island up into parcels. I'm going to build roads. I'm going to do all this, you know, all the things to attract people to come here and build houses and uh, businesses. And I want to have, you know, Bob's Island, which is going to be the best island to come and do business and raise your family. And in exchange for everyone coming, they have to sign a contract or, you know, some sort of, I don't know, a 200-year lease to own the land. You agree in this contract that um, if you come and live on the island, uh, you have to follow Bob's rules. And, you you know, you sign a contract that, that Bob is the owner of the island. And so even though you're living here, you have to agree to... Um, to do what Bob says. And so, you know, Bob is essentially the, the you know, the CEO of the island. And so um, Bob's really successful. Um, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people move to the island. Um, big companies come and set up a shop, uh, you know, skyscrapers get built. It's this like business paradise. People are, people are loving living on Bob's island. Um, years and years go by, um, Bob dies. Um, he leaves the island to his son. His son is like completely crazy, um, like Mad King type thing, starts getting into like arguments with some of the big business leaders on the, on the island. Um, and people start getting like in, getting into uh, conflicts. Um, but, but as the, as the years go by, um, this, the, the island starts to um, turn more and more uh, into something that looks like you know, a, a totalitarian state for all intents and purposes. Um, one day, like one of the families, uh, their kid, their seven-year-old kid, like trespasses in the wrong place, smashes a window. And um, Bob's son, let's call him Peter, tells them the kid, they have to remove the kid from the island. I'm like, we have nowhere to go. We have in two hours to get off my property or I'm going to escort or I'm going to go throw you in the ocean and you can go swim to another shore. And if you take anarcho-capitalism, its principles uh, uh, um, seriously, nothing unlibertarian is happening. Somebody's just enforcing their property rights. The parents signed a contract. That contract is like, but and and, you're, and, and so are we going to say this isn't a state? What has happened here? We haven't formed a state like. Like this, like this is this is the the regression problem that I see in this anarcho-capitalist argument, like. So are we going to say that's not, and actually a lot of them will argue it's not a state because, you know, following all these principles, we got to, we got to this place by contractualism, volunteerism, non-aggression principle, which now actually defends Peter's island's inheritance. So technically if he doesn't leave, they're the aggressors. And he's then, of course, um, under the non-aggression principle is able to use violence against the seven-year-old to remove him because it's, He's trespassing. Um, so like this is this is like an example of like why I don't think this ideology is very well thought out. Um, and this is why I asked you at the very beginning there to, to tell me what a state is. How is that not a state? Like, but I think it is a state <laughs> of, yeah. of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. But, and and but but I didn't violate any anarcho-capitalist principle all the way up into the end. How would you have defended that 20 years ago or whenever it was you were a libertarian? I probably would have said, I don't think it's likely to happen. I think I would have probably made some special pleading arguments saying, you know, I think in that world, there'll be competition between jurisdictions. And so people can always leave and there'll be the incentives of business will, um, 
will will never be towards like doing that that sort of thing. And I think as I I got older and started to really start to really think about human nature and seeing how humans can actually quite regularly act against their own self-interest. They, uh, and can be quite malevolent and, and kind of sociopathic, um, that, um, I, I came to no longer believe that market forces could not be relied upon to prevent those sorts of outcomes from happening. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I tend to come to it different ways. I, I, I'd had my own thought experiments, um, but one of the main things was this discussion around freedom where people would say to me, yeah, let's go from first principles. Is coercion right? And I'd be like, no, was there big tax is coercion. Mm-hmm. So why do you believe in the government should tax? Mm-hmm. And when people would come up, come at me with these kind of ideas, I had no decent defense because otherwise I have to say, I believe in coercion. Mm-hmm. And but it's a trap. It's, well, it's a it, trap. It is a trap. But when I kind of worked through the thought experiments, I was like, well, you talk about freedom. Uh, I feel very free in the UK. Actually, in Europe, I feel very free. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I need to have, uh, have a weapon uh, mm-hmm. to protect my home. I can travel quite freely. Everywhere I go, everyone's kind of nice. I feel very safe. And that, to me, is a certain amount of freedom. Mm-hmm. And the ideas regarding like libertarianism where you would be able to defend your home and defend your property and you know have pure freedom I, I i would question that and i would say well what happens if the guy next door to me has a lot more money and mm-hmm. he just comes and steals my land i said like, well you could take him to a uh, arbitration court i was like but what if the arbitration court sides with the guy with all the guns and money there was no like central rule of law and that's not to say i think the central law rule of law is great that's not to think i don't think there are injustices yeah of course there are but this base set of rules i feel like is what is missing from this and so i've tended to focus more on i think the libertarians have good ideas wouldn't it be great if there were uh, libertarians had more political capital and could have influenced politics that's where i'd kind of come to yeah, I think I think libertarians got a lot right. I want to be clear. Like I don't I don't think that a lot of the libertarian impulses are wrong. I mean, I think libertarians were in in some ways ahead of their time on excessive use of police force in the United States. I mean, um one great example of that is Radley Balco, right? And you know, his work on really trying to to um like raise people's awareness about um, police in the United States using incredibly violent tactics like no-knock raids, dynamic entry raids um, to effectuate drug searches, which was like, like which he would refer to as the deadliest tactic in, in U.S. policing. Um, there's a lot of scary data to like point that out, um, and and that's, this was all pre-Black Lives Matter stuff where libertarians were like like Radley were were sort of like shouting from the rooftops to to to, to bring attention to the fact that. Um, there were aspects of policing in the United States that were like completely out of control in terms of the use of lethal force in situations where it just didn't seem very justified. And so I give libertarians a lot of credit for being early in those discussions. Um, libertarians have been uh, among the the most clear-eyed in, in terms of the war on drugs um, over the, like, so I, I mean, I, I'm not like, I, I, I still like, like I said, I, I still have friends who are libertarians, and I consider them really good people. Um, and I like I I don't 
I'm, like I'm not anti-libertarian. Like I, it's, but I, but I, I guess like the more accurate way of putting it is that I think it's an incomplete view. It's an incomplete view of, um, of how we need to think about this modern society that we're in and all the equities that are involved um, and keeping this, this big complicated game of, of modern human society together. Is there a way of completing the view though? <laughs> because like I say, I think the influence of libertarians within politics, within government would be useful for better drug policy, yeah. for better policing policy, for, for, for a lot of different things with regards to uh, giving, you know, supporting more freedom mm-hmm. for the people. Yeah, I, I agree. Then the question then becomes, right, and this gets into, I mean, what is freedom? I mean, you just you just gave me one conception of it, I right? mean, which I've, is which is you feel free to move around, you feel safe. That's a form of freedom. You say you don't have to feel like you have to carry a weapon. Um, some people <laughs> that that doesn't feel like a form of freedom. No, some people want weapons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no. that would be rare in the UK. I, I I don't know, Danny. What do you think? If we had a vote on guns, uh, I mean, pro it, con, maybe one percent pro. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pulling that. Like, and probably there, every but. one of those would probably be a British libertarian. Um, nobody wants guns. It's just, it's just nobody wants it. And we yeah. want to keep our National Health Service despite criticisms of that. We, we just don't want it. Now, you know, one or two people listening will write to me and go, you're wrong, I do. But like, generally speaking, we do not want weapons. That said, if I came to live here, I wouldn't be anti-gun. Yeah. It's just a different culture. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think that people want to get rid of the state either. Like they, I mean, I... I don't know where people see evidence for that. Um, I think that that's, that's another, I mean, and not all libertarians do, by the way. I think, I mean, sometimes it seems like that. Um, smaller. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller um, percentage of that, but like- No, they what, want a smaller state. They want a smaller state. Um, but the reality is, is that most people want some form of welfare state. I mean, even most Republicans- in this, in, in, in the United States, which, which in Republicans are typically seen as the small government party that is anti-welfare, but like, I mean, they're the ones who added Medicare part D, um, they expanded social security. Like the reality is, is that, and, and they know that because they know that Republican voters by and large want to maintain the welfare state. Um, and so like, I don't know, I think you need, I mean, I think Milton Friedman was like, was, was probably like, probably put it best, right? Like, you know, if if we're not going to be able to to get rid of the welfare state, um, whether some people want to or not, for moral or ethical reasons, um, we might as well make it work better, right? Because because people don't want to get rid of it, and I think that's where like my head is at on those sorts of things. I mean, I think I think in the U.S. is crazy. We have like I don't know how many types of federal welfare programs there are. It's very inefficient, but. The, the this this conception that we're all going to sort of move to a more laissez-faire world where it's more sink or swim, um, rely on charities and churches and and community organizations to to help people who can't help themselves as opposed to the government. Um, there's there's no there's no political constituency for that. Like it that, that's that's real. Well, I haven't ever actually researched if there's background data on this, but I would love to. Uh, I would love to see the data on those countries that have uh, a welfare state and the percentage of GDP that goes towards that, and then any associated stats with regards to you know standard of living or 
you know, uh, lifetime expectancy. I mean, I've traveled to countries that have no welfare state and there are horrendous ghettos. And those, it's, it's not just about being fair. It is actually, it brings more risk to those who, the, the haves from the have nots, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that data. I'm sure Danny's having a look at it now. But I'm quite proud to look, like for, for the moment in the UK, we have a massive immigration, what's seen as an immigration problem. And uh, 40,000 people this year have crossed uh, from France, on, essentially on dinghies, risking their lives to come to the UK. I'm proud as a country that we actually fi- try and find a way to uh, accept them into the country and can provide them perhaps with housing and support and food and to give them a chance to have a leg up in society. I like that. But I, I don't like the idea of being challenged that I'm anti-freedom because of that. Mm. How is that that being anti-freedom? Well, because that's paid for by your tax and that tax is theft. (laughs) What have we got here? This is just the healthcare spending. I I can't find anything with, as a percentage of GDP. That's healthcare spending, but it's not kind of like, I'm I'm thinking more like tax and standard of living. Mm, Okay. Look at that. Isn't that insane how much the US spends on healthcare? It's it's actually really crazy. Yeah. I've I've got to experience both the UK and the US healthcare system recently. I've talked about this on the show. I have this thing called where I get an SVT and my heart rate just goes crazy sometimes. And the symptoms are like a heart attack. And so when we were in Miami recently, my lips all went cold. It all happened. Danny took me to emergency care in the US. And the there were a lot was very similar, but there were a couple of things that stood out to me. The hospital itself was more run down than a UK hospital, uh, which surprised me. Um the wait time was exactly the same. It was a four to five hour experience. But I was given way more tests in the US and uh, and they gave me um, some drugs to take at the end, whereas in the UK, they essentially do an ECG and a one blood test mm. or a couple of blood tests. And that really stood out to me is that it doesn't matter whether it was private or social, the kind of experience was pretty much the same. Um, but because of the risk of litigation in the US, they, uh, they did a lot more checks. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm originally from Canada, so right. I've I've experienced the healthcare system on both sides of the border, um, and yeah, I mean there are differences. I mean I would say emergency care in the U.S. and Canada is is pretty comparable. It's pretty much a very similar experience if you end up in an emergency room, where things are probably a little bit better in the U.S. and but what we pay for it is like access to to specialists. Um, you know the the uh, the famous example in Canada is like knee replacement sur- surgery. Um, wait times for that are anywhere from six months to a year. Um, if you need a knee, knee replacement, um, many Canadians end up because they're in so much pain um, coming south of the border to get it done out of pocket, which is which is very very expensive without without insurance. We had a Canadian guy in here the other day whose friend was going through the exact same thing and said the waiting list is eighteen months for an ACL replacement yeah. because of the backlog from COVID. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's an example a bit, but yeah, I mean, if you have a heart attack in Canada, I mean, you'll get relatively the same level of care you will in the U.S. It's when you're dealing with non-life threatening conditions that's when you really feel the, um, the, the like the way that the, the care is rationed, um, and that that's that's the biggest difference. And so there are there are trade offs. We we also have it with top end cancer treatment. A lot of people in the U.K. you would re- you regularly see it. Someone's fundraising to send their child for. Leukemia treatment in the US because yeah. the top end care is is better, yeah. and there are certain conditions that are considered curable here that aren't considered in the UK. I mean, one of my best friends he brought his son out here when I think he was about eight, and he 
he was cured of cancer. He, I'm pretty sure it was leukemia he had, and he was cured. And I think that is one of the uh, successes of having a more capitalist healthcare system in that there's a there's a financial incentive to solve those mm-hmm. uh, high end items. But at the same time, in the UK, if you have a heart attack, you're not going to get a big bill and be financially crippled for maybe even the rest of your life. I kind of like that. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's some evidence too that um, it's like, I mean, th- there's there's obviously going to be a drag on the economy from uh, employers having to cover the cost of healthcare as opposed to it being amortized, um, you know, across the whole population through like government pro- uh, programs. Um, I think that's true. Um, but like, like, I mean, so yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Like, I, I think that like most people want, most people in the United States want that, right? Like, I mean, it was just a midterm election and another red state just expanded, like, you know, opted into the Medicare expansion again. So, um, which state was that? I I can't remember which one it was. Uh, was it Kentucky or I, I'm, don't quote me. I don't remember, but some one of the states just did um, as part of a ballot measure. Does the Medicare system work? I, I mean, is it effective? Well, you, Medicare is is for like you the once you reach like retirement age in the United States, you essentially gain access to a federally run single payer system we okay. call Medicare, and then there's Medicaid, which is okay. another version for people who are. Um, below the poverty line, which was the one that just expanded. Um, it was, I think, it was a Medicare and Medicaid expansion, okay. if I'm correct. But um, we can fact check that. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, today we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, 
This can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Why do you think there is that significant connection between, especially in the Bitcoin world, there is a connection between right-wing politics and libertarians? Do you think it's economics driven? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's this, this element. Um, I think it's the, one of the more unfortunate aspects of libertarian politics that um, a friend of mine used to call the thin economic wedge in libertarian politics, where you're, where there's this real obsession that liberty is downstream of economic liberty. It's, it's a very curious claim. Um, like, like similar to the, the claim of, of self-ownership, which we can talk about too. Um, cause I don't think economic freedom is different from social freedom. Economic freedom is a social freedom. Like, like, like what name one economic transaction you can think of that is not of us, that is not a social act. Buying a coffee is a social act. Um, we're engaged in a social act. Um, uh, advertising is a social act. Um, even going and seeing a sports event or, um, buying gas at the gas station is a social act. Um, none of these things happen um, without some social freedom. So uh, separating social freedom, and I think when people try to separate that, they're thinking in terms of things like um, same-sex marriage or, um, you know, like the ability to use recreational drugs. Those are sort of the typical things people think of when they think social freedom versus like economic freedom. I think it's a really silly distinction because those things are, those things also implicate economic freedom. I mean, particularly on the same-sex marriage side, there's there's aspects of the tax system that is like that specifically advantages those who um, can get married. Um, you know, you can do you can jointly file your taxes, um, or if you know uh, recreational drug use, those, there's real businesses that can exist there versus otherwise can't. So, um, uh, thinking about these things as separate is 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 one weird thing that I think happens sometimes with libertarians, where they're like, "Look, I don't really care about social freedoms. If I have all my economic freedoms, then um, then then the social freedoms will come." And then my response is, "Is like, well, why do you think that? You know, like like people used to." Uh, like point to Hong Kong and Singapore and and even you know mainland China as examples of like oh they're they're even more capitalist than the United States. Well, yeah, maybe that maybe that's true in 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 some sense. But um, would you want to live, uh, you know, um, under a surveillance state um, like this with these crazy like systems like the social credit system and omnipresent um, surveillance um, online through like uh, completely uh, government controlled internet. Like, I mean, like the, the reality is, is that like there is, there is no separation between economic and social freedom. If you, if there's social control, there's economic control because 
all economic activity is downstream of social freedom and our ability to, you know, effectuate things through social means. And so I think that that is just a fallacious way of thinking where people have, they say that it kind of makes sense. They have these like few examples in their head of what economic freedoms are and a few examples in their head of what social freedoms are. And they haven't really thought about it too deeply. And they spend about five seconds thinking about it and then they cut off their thought process. Um, but if you think about it enough, you, you realize that you should probably care a lot more about social freedom if you're a libertarian, because that's that's the real way that your rights will get pulled from out from underneath you, including your economic rights. Yeah, that I, I've had a couple of clashes with people recently, uh, people who would claim they're a freedom maximalist, who express kind of bigoted views towards uh, gender freedoms, sexual freedoms, and uh, I've kind of got sucked into that. Uh, I, I would say I would say the Conservative Party has pushed a lot back on the advancement of freedoms we've seen for people related to gender and sex. Uh, and, the, and I think some of the pushback has potentially been fair, or there's certain things that can be challenged. Um, but at the same time, I don't understand somebody who claims to be a freedom maximalist who is triggered by the idea of same-sex relationships, marriages. You know, it's very strange. Yeah. Because, it's very strange because I, 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 my, you, you often find um, by, with like extreme libertarians, there's this sort of sense of like, I just want to be left alone by the state. But then objecting to people who are now being left alone by the state to do things that like, you know, they want to do like with their bodies, they want to, they want to present themselves as a, as a different gender or like they, they want to like, like love someone of the same sex. Like I, 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 yeah, I, that like exactly. Right. Like I think, I think when you, when you pull back the layers of the onion on that, what you find is they really just only care about like, you know, a very narrow set of economic goals keep as much money as they possibly can. They don't want it taxed. Um, but, but, general, but generally speaking, like they have very like socially conservative and, like, like goals. Um, th th this, this actually speaks to another element of libertarianism. And I sent out a tweet on this the other day, um, which is a true story about how I left libertarianism and what was like the actual straw that broke the camel's back was this sort of realization um, that I came to having a conversation with someone that like the like they saw like this person was 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 starting to to talk in in ways that were suspiciously sounding bigoted bigoted and 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 quite frankly racist and i remember asking him straight up i said you know it really sounds to me like what you're really concerned about here is you want to use property rights in their most strict sense as an excuse to like basically like create like a, an all white community and society. And he says to me, he says, what's the problem with that? Right. I have, I have a right to do business with whoever I want. And I was like, well, like, I, I, I'm like, and then I remember he like started jumping down my throat and says, it's like, you know, if you are a libertarian, you believe in property rights you can't tell me what I can and cannot do with my property. And I realized in that moment that like for him, libertarianism was 
about the right to put up a whites only sign in the storefront and then call it property rights. Um, and that was a absolutely like, um, like, I mean, it was, a, it was like an earth shattering moment for me. And I remember like uh, I was in a group of people and people were getting really mad at me that I was pushing back at this guy. And I didn't really understand why. And people were like, well, what are you saying? The state's gonna basically tell people they can't put up whites only signs um, in, in their storefront because that would be a violation of property rights. How can you be a libertarian and like support that? And you're like, wait, like, why is this so important to you guys? Like, why is this like, why is this like, why is the line in the sand that you want to draw here? And I, I just remember like going home after this and being like, holy crap. And like, I, I, I can't, I can't associate with these people. And I, I remember being really depressed and feeling like completely um, politically listless. That actually took me kind of year. Like I kind of like left the whole, my whole sort of political consciousness behind. I, I dove like, into my work and I stopped really thinking about politics day to day. Um, then I went back and I started like reading the classics again and I got into sort of, um, you know, liberal philosophy again. And that's how I kind of get to where I am today. But, um, but do, yeah. Do you think it's because maybe they want to defend the, the most extreme version of say property rights to protect all property rights? Uh, a, a bit similar to like the NRA, they don't give an inch on anything. I think there are people like that. Yeah. I think it's there's a slippery slope fallacy going on there. Yeah. Um, but I think there was no, there were really people there that saw this as like a way to they they saw it as a vehicle for for bigotry. They really did. And it, it's not surprising it's not surprising to me that like a lot of these people who I knew would, you know, like after 2016, just took the mask off. They just took the mask off. It reminds they, me of that Jordan, <laughs> Jordan Peterson video. Which one's that? You know, with the comedian interviews. Him. Oh, yes. Do you yes. Know, have you seen this video? No. The Australian. Yeah, yeah, with the Australian comedian. So it was when jo Jordan Peterson was discussing the idea of the, the cake shop. Do you know mm. in the cake shop? The, yeah. Can somebody who owns a cake shop refuse to serve... Uh, somebody who's gay because yes, this is like a famous the, case. Yeah. Yeah. But you've not seen Jordan Peterson discuss it. I have it. not seen Jordan Peterson discuss and, it. And, and actually I credit Jordan Peterson for his reaction, but it, it helped me understand why part, well, it helped me understand why part of these kind of ideas with regards to property rights and free speech don't work. You got it. Yeah. Making people bake a cake for a gay wedding. Making them do it. Yeah. I don't think that's a very good idea. But here's the argument. So should they be able to deny making a cake for a black couple if they don't like black people? Allowed to? Probably. That doesn't mean it's right. Okay, so then we had the civil rights movement yeah. where they said black people, we had to serve them in your restaurants and yeah. stuff like that. And it did work and it did make our society better. But would yeah. you argue that that still wasn't right? No, that was right. Why, why is that different to now if you didn't want to make a cake for black, black people? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not different. Yeah. Maybe I was wrong about that. So I credit it with actually admitting he was wrong. Yeah. But you go through those thought experiments and I think some of these ideas fall apart. And I think, I think personally, I like the idea of how we work out, how we coordinate as a society. Because I think if we don't figure that out, we just end up with something that's that's worse. And whether that's worse because we have 
less care or lesser social coordination, or we just end up with some new kind of authoritarian structure that comes in its place that fills a vacuum. Yeah. That's what I always worry about. But then, then get challenged on the idea of like, should there be hate speech laws? We have them in the UK and and I think sometimes they've been used ineffectively. Mm-hmm. So I kind of get lost Some in this. Some of them are pretty around. scary, actually, yeah. in, the, in the UK. Like I, I, um, do you know about the, the comedian with the dog? Yeah, I mean, some of the, the stuff you guys do in the UK with these like anti-social behavior orders and stuff like that is actually, for, my, for me, is like a little bit too far. I'm actually more libertarian than that even. Yeah. Um, so, so um, we, you know, we could talk about that. But like, I, 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 I think though, look, I, I, look, I, I think that, that we have figured out a really good system, right? And, and I think liberal democracy is, 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 is the best thing that we currently have on offer in terms of like trying to build a society that tries to create a system in which like we can try to find some balance between all these things we're talking about, like uh, making sure that like the, the, you know, people who are down on their luck don't like end up dead in a gutter or, you know, making sure that like, you know, uh, our, our, our government and our leaders can be held accountable. You know, we, we do that at the ballot box, right. With, you know, with, uh, with electoral democracy Um, and making sure that like the government can't go too far. We do that with like, you know, um, placing a liberal, conception of rights as a constraint on what the government can do you know that that kind of started with the magna carta back in the back in in the uk like hundreds of years ago um the us constitution was like a, 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 a another major step and many other countries have adopted um constitutions and, and human rights charters and stuff like that to try and codify that um and i think like like what like let, let's like what can we agree on like we i can agree that like like we sh- yeah we should not have tyrannical major- majorities that are running roughshod over minorities we should not have government with unchecked power um if P- if government is going to have power over us um they they have to be accountable to us they have to be transparent like these are like these are all things that like we figured out and what's really frustrating about living in 2022 is like the fact that like there's this sense that like everything has failed. The whole system has failed. Democracy has failed. Liberalism has failed. We need something new. I don't think that's true. I think we've just like gotten really lazy about fighting for, you know, these systems, fighting for the systems of democracy, fighting for liberal values. It kind of feels like maybe a little bit that that, and especially in the recent months now that, that maybe that, that zeitgeist has shifted. and, And that gives me a little bit of hope, but like, I don't, I don't like, like what, what is it about that, that that's so offensive to some people in this space, a liberal <laughs> democracy, like it all, it, I, it's so, it's so weird. I, I feel like in some of these conversations, it's, it's almost like, like it, it feels like sacrilege to even like say uh, you support these things. I think because historically you can point to a number of things that the state has done, which is not great, which yeah. is locking up people in yeah. jail, which is unnecessary wars in the Middle East and various other places. Um, It is massive surveillance. Like I think there's plenty of things. All these things have happened. Yeah, and I think there's plenty of reasons to look at them and say, this is a problem. This isn't good. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm just not the one who thinks we should burn it all down. What, what, like, but this, I I actually love, I I love that you brought this up because what you say is, what, what, those criticisms are, are, are true. 
right? I mean, we talked about one of them earlier when I was talking about Radley Balco and mm. and um, um, and police successes. Um, you brought up, you know, like foreign wars. Um, you know, the you know the Iraq War of two thousand three comes to mind as as something that's like I when when I think about it, it's like it's it's enraging to think that that actually happened, um, and that that the people who perpetrated it, you know, haven't been held accountable for it. Those things are all true, but like, I, I think if you're gonna do this, you have to engage in a little bit of counterfactual reasoning, mm -hmm. right? Like, 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 what is the real alternative, right, to trying to go forward and trying to reform and trying to make the, the future better? Um, the, the reality is, we're a very flawed species. We always have been. Like, we're like we've like I mean, sure, like yeah, like we've done all these bad things, but like human beings, like and mass have done really bad things for thousands of years, right? Like um, up until, you know, the last couple hundred years, like slavery was actually legal in most places in the world. We forget about this. I mean, it's, I mean, there's, there's an embarrassing legacy in the United States of slavery and, and, and we should be embarrassed by that legacy and we should be learning about that legacy. But like, let's like, if we take human history as like a, as like a, a total, like, a total view on human history, like humanity has been pretty shitty to itself. I mean, we've been like, we've, you know, we've, we've been, we fought wars, many wars, not just the Iraq war, but like insane war, World War One. like I, I don't even like, I, I mean, I, I, I've studied it and I'm still not quite clear on like what, what happened there. It's like the weirdest thing that ever happened um, in the, in the 20th century that, that led to, to millions of deaths. And so we're, we're like, yeah, like we're, we have the capacity to be very shitty, but we also have a capacity to be very beautiful, right? We have, we like we've we've gotten progressively better. Like you know, there's there's another way of looking at our history. There's another way of, of like course, looking yeah. at um, like where we've come from, right? Like slavery is not legal anymore. Same sex marriage is legal. Um, you know, we we have like most Americans today. If you poll them, think Iraq the Iraq War was a mistake. I mean, that's, that's progress of a kind. Like the fact that like, you know, that, that, that people realize that like these mistakes have happened. So like, I mean, this, this idea that like, what are we gonna do? We're gonna anthropomorphize like countries and say, well, you did this. And so these sins are attached to you. And so we have to somehow like punish the, the state, which isn't even a thing. It's just like a, a conglomeration of a whole bunch of people working together and reacting to incentives. And it's like, like the state isn't, it's just a, it's just an idea. It's just a concept. It's just us following a bunch of rules we wrote down on a piece of paper. Like it's not like the, like the United States is not a is not a person that's guilty of something, right? Like I mean, I think a lot of us think like that as like a mental shortcut, and I know why we do because it's like a useful abstraction. But like it it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't tell you what. It, I mean, if you do think like that, then yeah, we should take the United States out back and we should execute it for its crimes. But it's not. But it's but the United States isn't a person. It's not like, it, it, and it doesn't make sense to think of it that way. I think there's parts of what the United States has done by creating this kind of like, maybe this is one area you agree with and why you're a fan of Bitcoin, but created this global reserve currency. I, um, are you friends with Alex Gladstein? Yeah. Okay. Him and I, him and I are, yeah, we, we, uh, we had dinner just the other night. Oh, great. So I'm going to bore people on the show because I keep mentioning this at the moment, but it just tends to happen when you have an important show. We made a show about... Did he talk to you about his paper he's working on on the World Bank and the IMF? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we made a show on that. And then, you know, a lot of the the ability for not just the USA, I mean, Europe and 
other Western liberal democracies, the ability for them to be able to progress and create this high standard of living is this kind of economic imperialism that they've imposed on the rest of the world. You know, things like that, again, like they're not good. Mm-hmm. And and we're in agreement on this. So, so my question there really be, would be, well, what are the reforms then that we want? Mm-hmm. What are the reforms that would be good that, that would kind of end some of the things we've, you know, perpetrated on the rest of the world or you know even in our own societies because that's where i'm more comfortable is it's not to burn it all down it's to say look okay democracy has its challenges what how can we improve things yeah so uh, it's funny alex and i actually had this conversation over dinner great and we were talking about the world bank and the imf um and, and you know and, and he had asked me like you know like 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 how i thought about it and i got into talking a little bit about you know, if we're going to get a little bit sort of sociological and philosophical here is like, you know, the way I look at a lot of these things is, is there's like, there's, there's, there's path dependence issues, right. That, that get us to like where we are today. You know, I, I think, I think it's like, it's, it's very true that the world bank and the IMF um, have done quite a bit of damage in terms of like in, enmeshing the global South in in debt and then giving them more debt to pay off, old, you know, older debt, and have created like what what a, what is like something that is I mean, moral is is morally um, problematic to say the least. Um, and and yeah, like I mean, to like and I and I think like Gladstein's message on this around Bitcoin being this emancipatory force here to allow people and countries to take control of their own destiny is certainly something that I, that I support and I'm in agree, agreement with. I, I think it's, I, you know, I, I think that when you look at like, how did we get here, right? Like, I, I think that there's a lot of road to hell uh, being paved by good intentions there. I think there was, there's probably were some starry eyed um, people along the way, like I, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, right? Like I, I, I believe that one of the reasons why, like you know, like Nixon originally like broke down and and went to China and started to normalize relations, and the fact that Thatcher, um, you know, handed Hong Kong back over to China was a belief that, you know, through engagement and through like economic development that. The, that, that China in particular would liberalize over time as a result of like economic reforms. And I think the World Bank and the IMF have, have tried to follow a similar script, hoping that like through economic investment that a lot of these countries would, um, would reap the benefits of market economies. They would like become more productive. They'd be able to pay back these loans and they would become more like liberal democracies that were, that were more wealthy. What, what ended up happening though was like, a lot of these governments were corrupt. They embezzled a lot of the money, didn't make it to the people, didn't actually turn into investments at all. Um, infrastructure wasn't built. If it was, it was like purely in service of just like, you know, setting up mines that were exporting raw materials back, yes, like to like first world countries. But like, I do think that like two things are true. One, these systems were were set up with people who were starry-eyed about the power of like um, economic reforms and market economies that would actually lift people out of poverty worldwide. And, and by the way, like market reforms have lifted billions of people out of poverty. Let's like be very clear. But like we we didn't 
we didn't spend enough time like um, advancing the cause of, of freedom, liberal, liberty, and democracy. We actually, what, what happened was, is we had a neoliberal movement in the, the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s in particular that felt if we could just like jumpstart capitalism around the world, um, we, would, we, would, we would then like democracy and liberalism would follow. And I think, I think the, what happened with World Bank and the IMF had a lot to do with that. And, and we reached this, this, this point where we are today, where we're looking at it now and we're like, well, holy crap, like it's, it's, it hasn't done that. It's made these countries, uh, it's, it's actually made them even more dependent on foreign aid um, over time. They haven't developed their economies. Their, their governments are, are corrupt and that corruption is being reinforced by these regimes that we've created. Um, and so it's like, yeah, like it's, it's, it's a, like it, it's a moral dilemma that we have to to take on, and so I agree that like we need we need people um, to realize that, and we need to start taking positive steps towards like including billions of people on this planet that that simply do not have access to what we do sitting here at this table. Back to my question on reforms, though, what do you believe needs reforming? What do I, I, yeah. I think I, we could you might be have done the, this. We could be here for the next five hours. If I mean, what do I believe needs reforming? Like specifically with the IMF or the no, World Bank? No, more like, with domestic, say domestic politics to begin with. Just to give, you know, to give, I think there's a lot of kind of nihilism at the moment. Uh, I think people are losing faith in the ability, what, what their vote actually does yeah, or means. Yeah, so the, the, got, I, politics, I, sorry, just politics seems to be attracting shit people. And I think good people avoid it because they don't want to have their lives destroyed. I mean, at the moment in the UK, it's just like, you know, we don't have the two-party politics issues that you have here in the US. We just have just fucking wankers in politics, just absolute, like people you don't want to vote for. It's like Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. I couldn't vote for him. And, you know, we've had four prime ministers in the last couple of years in uh, in the Conservative Party. I mean... Boris Johnson, by the way, who used to claim he's a libertarian. Um, he's not, he was just a conservative. Um, we've had Liz Trust, destroyer of economy. We have Rishi Sunak at the moment, who is very authoritarian in the way he speaks at times. There's just there's no one to vote for. Mm-hmm. And it's it's no one to believe in or get behind. There's like it's no one to look up to. Yeah, I think I think it's well it Yes, I mean, if you want democracy to survive, people have to have a perception that government is responsive to their needs and it's like paying attention to the things that they care about. Um, and I think, yeah, like I mean, that that nihilism you speak of, like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm raging against that all the time um, because the reality is is that we're the problem. We're the problem with democracy. I'm the problem with democracy. We're all the problem with democracy, right? Like, um, if like like this idea that it's just the politicians' fault. I mean, that can't be true, right? I mean, like um, we keep voting for them. We, yeah, I mean, we we keep vote we we keep voting for them, and we can stand for election. Um, and and I think we need to reinvigorate people's belief in that. Like, I mean, like political change can happen. And it has, right? Like, I mean, the UK was an economic basket case in the 1970s, right? And and of course, you know, Thatcher came in and and reformed the reformed the UK economy. She she brought 
broke the back of the the trade unions. I mean, like, and which to which was a very difficult period um, for the for the UK. But like the UK like went on to a massive economic boom. Um, the next twenty years in, in the UK were um, was impressive in terms of how much economic development happened after that. So, I mean, the reality is is that like we can make things better. We we can and we have this idea that we're stuck. The system has failed. It can't go any further. Is is exact is 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 a, it's a false despair. Like it, it, it's, it's within the power of all of us to, to do this. And I, 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 I'm, I guess like all I can do is keep screaming from the rooftops that like, yes, we should all care about democracy. We should all, you know, if we want something to happen, then we should identify candidates that support our points of view on those things. And we should try to elevate them. Um, we can donate money. We can support Bitcoin. I mean, we, we should at some point get to like how Bitcoin can help with democracy because I think it wow, can. Wow, that was on my next question. <laughs> but yeah, so but I I think I think that um, yeah, I mean that's that's the double edged sword of democracy. Um, if you engage, then then democracy will will respond to that engagement. If you disengage, then special interests and nefarious interests and malevolent interests will capture the politicians. They'll capture politics. And we will have governments that are not responsive to the wants and desires and needs of, uh, of the, the people who they govern. It's that simple. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. 
and they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. So what does Bitcoin mean to you? Uh, and I put that question to you because, again, like, based on the questions that come at me, it's like, you know, you're a statist. You don't even understand. I hate that term. I that is, that that is term. a pejorative Dan, term. Dan, so. Danny tells me off uh, even referring to myself. But they're like, you, you know, you're a statist. You don't even understand Bitcoin. If you understood Bitcoin, you wouldn't be a statist. And I'm like... Huh. Because as far as I'm aware, Bitcoin for me was peer-to-peer electronic money mm-hmm. that routes around mm-hmm. the control of anyone. But I don't remember any time, correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't read all Satoshi's writings, but he said he created Bitcoin to get rid of government. It was to get rid of central banking. Mm-hmm. So, And I'm okay with that. I don't think that's a bad idea. We had the elimination of church, yeah. church and state, and I think the elimination of money and state is a should be debated. But at the moment, I have plenty of uses for Bitcoin that materially improve my life within the sphere of democracy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean to, to bring up Alex Gladstein again, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the work that he's doing at the Human Rights Foundation with Bitcoin, pursuing the cause of democracy, I mean, in places that... Um, that that where it seems helpless, hopeless, um, and the way that Bitcoin is being used by human rights activists and democracy activists, and in in Africa, um, in in Russia, in the case of you know Alexei Navalny's organization, yep. the Anti Corruption Foundation. Um, I mean, these are like real ways that today that Bitcoin is being used. Um, to advance the cause of freedom and democracy. So that's very real. And I want to give a shout out to, to Alex Gladstein again and, and the amazing work he is doing at the HRF on that. Um, now, in terms of like where we end up and whether or not money and the state ever end up getting completely separated, I'm a bit skeptical that it will ever quite really happen. Um, I am one of those people who 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 is sort of accepts the reality that I think credit will continue to be a very dominant form of money, um, whether or not it's denominated in Bitcoin or not, whether or not Bitcoin ever becomes a unit of account. One thing I, I, I believe though, is that Bitcoin really changes the incentives in a really, really dramatic way for if central banks continue to exist and continue to issue you know, state money like fiat currency, they, they will have to do so in a world where an off-ramp to Bitcoin is going to be omnipresent, where they're going to have to think about 
um, the mechanics of of how their currency works. And it could be it's going to be a lot easier in the future for people to lose trust in alternative currencies with if Bitcoin becomes an omnipresent global currency. It's like another check and balance. It's a check and balance. And we should want that, right? Like we don't yeah. like, I mean, like, I'm, like I said, like I'm a small liberal um, and, and, and the purpose of democracy is to give power to the people. It's not to give power to the government, right? The government is, is there to, um, you know, provide protection, uh, to provide a common set of rules and laws so we can all be more free. So we don't have to worry about, you said earlier, like, worrying about your safety and having to carry a gun like to to protect yourself at every moment of the day like safety is a form of freedom i agree with that i'm i'm with you on that and like that's what those are the sorts of things we want government to do things we don't want government to do is to come into our bedroom to tell us like you know like like where we where we can work and where we can't and where we can move where we can live and like who we can be friends with and who we can associate when government starts doing those things and like i'm going to start sounding a lot like a crazy libertarian slash anarchist too right like i i believe that there are limits to the power of government and i think yeah we're moving into a scary world where the the digital sphere is a double-edged sword and we see two, both sides of those swords on one side we see it with bitcoin the, the democratizing power of it, the, the ability to, to return power to individuals in a way where governments can't control it, corporations can't control it. But then we see the other, the other side of that sword with technology, with like really scary Orwellian surveillance states like China. Um, technology is very dangerous. Um, or, or, and, or, 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 or America. Or helpful. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like the, the, the NSA. The is. NSA, I mean, the, the, the things that Edward Snowden exposed I mean, these programs appeared to me anyways, to be unconstitutional, contrary to what um, US law appears to allow for. So a government Fourth breaking- Amendment? Yeah, <laughs> government breaking the law um, is a serious problem for democracy. Government should always be below the law. And so, yeah, like we, we need to start thinking about ways that we return power to people. And Bitcoin is, 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 is super compelling in that regard. Um, and it's, and it's one of the ways that I think we can, we can really start to hopefully bend the, the course of history back to some balance where government is more responsive to us, more responsive because they realize that we have, we have power to, to choose where we save our money, how we spend our money. I think, like, I, I, I think I'm more on Andrew Bailey's side of this that, like, I think Bitcoin may incentivize um, states to be a lot more responsible with fiat currency. And mm. I, I, and I said this at, I agree with and that. I said that, and I said this, I said this at Bitcoin Miami earlier this year, as I think ironically, Bitcoin may be the thing that saves fiat from itself because it creates this sort of <laughs> check and balance where, um, governments are going to, like governments are going to continue to want it because, um, for, so they can tax, you know, in that currency because they want to maintain a welfare state and they want to be able to like issue bonds for capital investments to build bridges and roads and stadiums and all these other things. And so I think there'll be a great incentive for governments to try and maintain the power to issue fiat, but I don't think they'll be able to do it at the levels of irresponsibility that, we, that, that we've seen over the last 20 years. Like what we saw happen at the late 90s and early 2000s and, and how they, we've blown up these asset bubbles with incredibly easy money policies, zero interest 
interest rate policies that like we see it, like we see these graphs from like the St. Louis Fed and like, we're like, what, like this can't, like how can this. this well, what can't. we saw yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were looking at the chart, we were looking at the debt clocks. Um, it's scary things. I mean, I've always had a very simple uh, way of explaining this is, is this how I explain Bitcoin to people and why it matters? I said, if uh, I asked somebody about their budget, yeah, when you get paid at the end of the month, what do you do? And it's, you pay for your house and your car and you, you know, put money by for your food and you maybe some for a holiday, you have a bit, little bit left over. I said, well, what happens if you go over budget? I said, well, you know, maybe I'll get a loan. I said, well, what happens if you don't pay the loan back? I said, well, they take my house off of me. I was like, well, what if you had a printer up in your room and you could just keep printing money and kicking the can down the road? It's like, well, I would print that money. Well, that's exactly what we've given government. Yeah. Now, if you took that ability to print money away, I believe the government would run a budget and they'd have to stay within budget. They would mm-hmm. have no choice because they don't have the ability to print money. And and no, they would still take on debt. They could the take debt, on debt. Yeah, but yeah, they would course. they would they would they would borrow they would still borrow against the future. But they but, but they could be bankrupted easier. Yes. And. We know the U.S. government is running the risk of default. There mm-hmm. is a, a potential in our lifetime of a U.S. government default. Oh, there's is, certainly a potential there. Which I mean, is the crazy. sovereign sovereign debt risk in the United States is is rising. It's it's troubling. I don't think we're near it now, but it like you can see how it could happen now, and it's and that's scary. But they should. If you look at the budget now, they should be slashing the military spend. They should be slashing social security spend, and they should be running a, a budget. Mm-hmm. It, to me, that is natural. And I, I think it's inevitable that taxes are going to go up in this country and people don't want to hear me say that. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, they're going to go up in the UK at the moment. Yeah, it's inevitable. Yeah. I mean, we, we had uh, Liz Trust try the opposite, which was to reduce taxes and increase spending and she blew up the pension market. Um, mm-hmm. Now we've been told that we're going to see higher taxes and slash spending, which is sadly exactly what is required mm-hmm. to get back to trying to balance the budgets as close as we can. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it will eventually reach that point. I mean, I, I I lived through a little bit of that when I was younger, right? And and um growing up in Canada in 1993, um, the Canadian government's um, debt to GDP ratio got frighteningly high. Um, the government was six months away from default. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but the um, the the Liberal Party had had won an election in 1993, deposing the the Progressive Conservative Party. It was the one of the, the greatest electoral defeats in in the history of the country. Um, I think the PCs were reduced to two seats in the parliament. It was a, a massive majority. Like the, yeah, the, the Liberals had run on a on a on they had this little uh, they had an election platform. Um, uh, called, called the Red Book, and it was like all the crazy things they were going to do, and all these social services. And when uh, John Cretchen became prime minister, uh, Paul Martin became the finance minister. They they realized that um, they were in a lot of trouble. You know, the the country was in recession, and when they start and when they started to realize that the bond markets were moving against Canada, and the cost of borrowing was spiraling out of control, um, Canada underwent what. A lot of people at the time um, saw as like I mean there were there were protests and like uh, like union like public sector unions were protesting right left and center, but the the federal public spending, um, public sector spending fell by forty percent by the end of the decade because it had to. The government went. What, I mean, the government saw the the end was nigh, and um, the country had to go through some pretty painful adjustments. Um, 
taxes had, I mean, the, 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 a sales tax, a federal sales tax was imposed, the, the GST, that actually did happen at the end of the, the previous government. Uh, Cretchen, and Cretchen had actually promised to get rid of the 7% 7, 7 federal sales tax that was imposed, but then he kind of realized he couldn't get rid of it because it would it was like one of the few lifelines that was bringing in um, enough funds. But like, yeah, I mean, the like I've I've I was young much younger then, but like yeah, like I, I think the United States is is headed for a moment like that where there's one day someone's gonna in the Treasury Department's gonna be looking at some spreadsheet on their computer and they're gonna realize, um, hopefully when they're not too late, that like something has really got to change and fast or the United States is going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, like I say, it's the UK's is exactly the same. Danny, it's another Canadian. Another Canadian. It's uh, three it's Canadians. It. Yeah, it's been a week of Canadians. Somehow, have we been kind of like group attacked? <laughs> have we been civil attacked by the Canadians? I, I am. I'm. I'm also an American citizen. Oh, so, are you? But, so I'm, I'm a dual citizen. All right. Fair enough. And so, so, so when you think about Bitcoin, then what what are the important things for you? You see everything debated on Bitcoin, Twitter, crypto, Twitter. What are the things you care about now? I care about like. I care about building transactional utility for Bitcoin. I care about Lightning, like the continue, like continue to develop Lightning and 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 address the challenges there. I care about like building decentralized identity, um, in uh, in order to enable more robust self custody scenarios. I think that like m finding ways to make Bitcoin relevant to people's daily life. As opposed to just something that you like, you know, trade on an exchange and draw fancy lines on charts and try to figure out like, is the bottom in yet? Is this the top? Is this the reversal? This I think this is a head and shoulders pattern. Like I mean, like death this cross. is yeah, the death cross. Like this is this is like something which I am like very much uninterested in. Um, I'm really interested in building infrastructure on top of Bitcoin that can ultimately like bring like a like a better ex better experience than we have today in fiat like it, like this this is this is my realization as a product person um you know I worked on cash app for nearly a decade and my learning is is that like it's not enough to it's not it's not enough to be better certainly it's not enough to be better just for because of principles like decentralization or censorship resistance i mean these are not the reasons why people will use bitcoin i mean if people think that people will use bitcoin because it's decentralized and censorship resistant then i have serious questions about like why tiktok continues to be the fastest growing application um uh, social media application given all given the fact that you know, it certainly is not decentralized and it's certainly not censorship resistant. Um, it's in the media all the time that the, that the Chinese government um, has its hands all over that application. You and me are weird. Like we care about this stuff a lot. Like I, I care about like the properties of decentralization and censorship resistance and the fact that it's outside of the control of the state. My, my daughter doesn't care about that. My my wife doesn't understand it, or she doesn't care about that. And I'm and and and, and this is me. And they're living with me, right? And um and they're kind of representative. And I think that this is this is this is something that 
Like, it, I mean, it informs my work. To me, TBD is like very much about like first principles. How do we build products and services that are easier to use? They're more approachable, they're safer, they're cheaper, they're faster than what people are using today. And that's, that's to me is what this industry if there is in there, if there is an industry to be called the Bitcoin industry, that has to be where the focus is. Um, it cannot be on like you know number go up. People got mad at me. I tweeted out that number go up is not a use case, I and a whole that. bunch of people got mad at me and said, "Well, that's like that's not true because that's like savings." And and I was like, I'm, "But but I but I think." Okay, maybe I'm willing to concede the point a little bit, like that 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 as a savings vehicle, it's like just it's, not it's, it's good. It's 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 just not enough. That's not going to sustain it. Like you, like artificial scarcity is not enough to sustain something. I can create artificial scarcity anywhere for any reason, right? Like I can come up with arbitrary rules. Like people do it all the time. They're trying to create new. They're trying to create these new cryptocurrencies that that we all call shit coins and stuff. But like, so artificial scarcity is just not enough of an incentive um, to make it work. Um, the good news is, is Bitcoin already has really substantial market effects in place, like substantial liquidity all around the world. We can build payment payment systems on top of it. We can build remittance uh, solutions on top of Bitcoin. We can secure digital identity with Bitcoin. You know, we're doing that with with Ion. Um, like, and so these are all the things that like people need to be focused on in this space if they want to see this future. If they want to see that future where Bitcoin is a check and balance on the excesses of government. If they want to make sure that like Bitcoin is this emancipatory force that allows us to return economic power um, and political power, maybe ultimately um, to individuals, particularly in the cases of those people who are fighting for their right to be free in, in, in the first place, especially the, with the work that Alex Gladstein is doing, you know, at, at the HRF. Um, and I think that's how we have to think about it. And so I try really, really hard to avoid talk about the price. Like mm. I, I just, I try not to care about it. I try to be very dismissive about the price of Bitcoin on any given day because it's, it's such a distraction to the hard work that needs to be done if we're going to build a new financial system around Bitcoin, which I want to do. It's what I'm doing like every single day at TBD. We don't really talk about price on the show anymore. We don't make price shows. We used to make like once a month show with Willy Woo. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, I don't do that. And um, it was a different reason we stopped it. We stopped it because we wanted to do all our interviews in person. But now we wouldn't go back to that. I mean, we'd maybe do a one-off with Willy. Yeah. But actually, he talks about other interesting things anyway. Uh, back to your point whereby you know, people are not going to use Bitcoin because it's decentralized or censorship resistance. It's more of a point they can use it because it is. There's certain people out there yeah. who can use it because of that, which yeah. is great. But I'm um I get it. I'm with you. Like I'm I'm beyond HODL now. I think HODL is great if you're new and it's a great meme for trying to get people to forget about you know the volatility and price. I'm now about utility. I want to use it. We use it for our football club. We you know, we got all our merch here. We're selling it at the event and we people were paying in Bitcoin. We hold that Bitcoin. I now spend Bitcoin when I wouldn't and I want to spend it mm -hmm. because, because I see it more as a revolution and to be part of the revolution, I've got to contribute. So me starting to use it rather than focusing on every bit of Bitcoin is what it was worth in the future means I'm contributing to that revolution. That's a really important part yes. to me. And you know, we need people to use it because if more people use it, more people need it. The price will go up, which will 
you know, allow things like mining to expand, which will allow education resources to expand. Like the network effect creates all these kind of perpetual loops of spread of information. So I'm um, I'm really in the camp of wanting to use it. I want more use yeah. cases for it. I, I want it to be better. I don't know what they are. How yeah, do, no, how I, do, because how can it? You know, if you had, even though I prefer using Lightning from Visa, how can it be better? How, in the end, a transaction is a tap or is a tap. How can it be better? What what more can it do? It can maybe go across border easier. Yeah, I think I, I not to not to toot my own horn a little bit here, but I Please think I, I think that the way it's going to feel better is when we're when we really solve decentralized identity and verifiable credentials. Um, as oh a, man, Jeremy loves this stuff. Yeah, as 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 like as like a base, like like yeah, like when 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 we solve that problem, and we're able to use that as sort of the way in which we mediate transactions, like on and then then you can really start thinking about like self custody scenarios that feel as good, if not easier, than like custodial scenarios or using your Amex card or your or your Visa card. Um, because one, it will be more secure. It'll be more easy to use. Everything will be a one click on board into a service. You won't like, we can actually use these technologies to create the future we always wanted to live in where, um, one, we have full control over identity, our identity. Um, it's not stored in some centralized database yet. We still have the mechanism to create web webs of trust, figure out how to trust each other on the internet. Know you are who you say you are therefore have transactions that can even potentially have recourse. Um, and I think, I think one thing that I'm predicting and, and people's mileage will vary on this is the emergence of, of layer three payment protocols. Um, so I, I, I view, so obviously we all know that Bitcoin is layer one um, and lightning is layer two. I think we're eventually going to reach a point where we have like more recourse based protocols that can provide a lot of the benefits that credit cards do today where yes you can reverse a payment if a if someone defrauds you or they don't provide services or there's like non-delivery of goods um because this is like a real problem right like if you do something like buy I don't know like a diamond ring online and it get, and and you charge and you let's say you send someone like seven thousand dollars of bitcoin and you sit there and wait and a month goes by you send an email my ring hasn't arrived like there's no there's no there's no recourse right but how it, do you arbitrate that i think we're going to have trust protocols like like look how does it work today the way it works today is we have these systems of social trust we're not even aware that they're there right like like why do we why do we trust amazon is going to deliver um boxes to our house like based on like what we enter in there. Well, it's for social trust reasons. We we socially trust them because we know all of our friends use Amazon and it's worked out and we read in the news that like Amazon, and, and we build up in our mind all of these like puts and takes about like what to trust in life. And there's more puts there than takes. And so we trust Amazon. And what we need to do is we need to like be able to have that for the the digital realm. 
like for Bitcoin. And the way we do that with things like verifiable credentials is we can literally do the same thing where you can where you can have a, a digital identity, I can have a digital identity, or a company can have a digital identity, and then it can have verifiable credentials where other trusted actors in the system vouch for each other. And we can cryptographically verify we're dealing with who we are. And once we do that, we can actually have lower risk transactions where um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a layer one transaction or even a layer two transaction, where it can be more like just a pure net settlement layer through escrow services where, um, people will accept that sort of thing because one, like that's the only way people will do these things because they'll, they, otherwise they won't buy from, they'll buy, they'll, they'll choose to buy from online vendors that use layer three payments versus other payment mechanisms where it's just too easy to defraud them. And people get all upset at me. I was on a but it's against what yeah. Satoshi said no, in the, I, pretty I, much the it, first paragraph of the white yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is. And but here's the problem, right? And and this is what I said. And I got into a pretty big debate on a. Um, I w- someone pulled me into a uh, um, a conversation recently. It was like on a Twitter Spaces or something, um, and I really got into it. And and I and my argument here is is that if there is no recourse, then the rate of fraud is simply part of the transaction costs. So if like, if 5% of all of your Bitcoin gets misappropriated, misdirected, like for, you know, uh, non-delivery of goods or your, your failure to provide services, that's, I mean, it'll probably be higher than 5% in a world where there's no recourse. Um, that's, that's, that's like more expensive than, than credit card exchange today. Yeah, but don't we have... Um fact that within the current system where you can have re- transactions reversed, there is a different fraud that happens there. Mm-hmm. And that's also part of yeah. the transaction cost. Yeah. So do, don't we have it better this way? I think it's more that people will choose the payments layer that reflects what's at stake. Okay, so you could have the reverse one or you could have the anarchist one. Yeah, so if you're, for example, if, if you're moving, you know, a $100 million worth of Bitcoin to settle some major international settlement, you're going to want to do it like on layer one, right? You're not, you're not going to screw around with some crazy system where there could be a chargeback. But if you're buying a coffee where there's very little at stake, where the actual risk of like a chargeback or being defrauded over that is like, is, is de minimis, like the, the business would lose pennies, but the extra customers it might get because of the more, the east, the, the lower risk to the customer is it more than makes up for it. And I think those transaction costs end up being much, much lower. And so I think I think what we're going to see is we're going to see like multiple layers of, of, of payments where what's at stake in the transaction is going to determine whether or not someone feels safe doing a layer one, layer two, or layer three transaction. I think layer one is, um, is like, it's, it's the final settlement and everyone doesn't need that, which is why we have lightning. And lightning is where we can have non-reversible P2P transactions. It's incredibly low risk um, where you don't, where, where you still don't need that much trust because it's really hard to, to, to screw the other person over. But then we're going to have a third layer, which I believe are going to be trust protocols where social trust is, is something that we rely on very heavily to create efficient economic transactions. And the nice thing about this new world is unlike this world today, 
right? Like we can't, we're, we're, we basically are at level three today, like at layer three today with all of our debit cards and credit cards around the world. And there's no way for us to get down to a layer two or a layer one uh, scenario today. But in this world, we'll just be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just be able to drop down to layer one when it's important to us. When we need to know that 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 we have the money in hand, and there's no no one can screw us over, and so I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be like that, and I think TBD is starting to work on things that I think exist more in that layer three world, um, and I think, and I think that is necessary to solve a lot of these problems because chargeback fraud is very real, and I, I you don't have to tell me about it. I work for a company that. Uh, that that deals with it every single day. However, like there's another side to it. Like people do like get taken for a ride. Like I, I, I've, I've ordered things online before that never showed up. And it was really good that I was able to call my bank and say like, well, the, the thing I just paid $2,000 for it, it just, ne- oh, actually I, I once bought something off of eBay um, and they sent me a box and it was literally empty, um, inside. Focus. So like, so like, so I, I like, so I was like for, I, I saw the FedEx thing. It's like on its way. So like they completely like took me for a ride. And I think, I think, yeah, I think people are still going to want to have recourse payments and recourse payments are going to be appropriate for the vast majority of low stakes economic transactions. You're not going to want to have recourse payments if you're buying a house or a car, if you're sitting at a car dealership. You're you're probably gonna you're gonna do a, probably a layer two or a layer one transaction. How, how does that work though in terms of chargeback fraud? Will I also in my identity it will show if I'm somebody who's regularly yeah requesting a you know uh, requesting my money back? How does that actually work in the reality? In reality, in reality, it's just it's just a delayed settlement. It's an escrow, okay. like delayed settlement mechanism. But but who arbitrate? How do we arbitrate whether I received my box or not? There's going to be companies. There's going to be a business recourse payments. Like maybe that's where Visa and Mastercard will pivot their businesses in the future. Like and and they'll find some business model to to, to do that. Um, that's how I that's how I how I view it. And I think maybe they'll figure out ways to to continue to have some sort of customer loyalty program, or maybe some businesses will actually pay some small nominal fee to be part of their payment network or part of their marketplaces or their their discovery networks. Um, and that's how, how those things will happen. But I, I believe those things will happen because I think the demand is there and the potential for fraud is just very, very high. But I do think that like the difference between that and what we have today is the layer one and layer two is always there. Mm. You can always use it. Yeah, I you mean, can, it's pretty fucking rad. <laughs> like that's the cool thing is like no one will ever be stuck at layer three. They'll always be able to say, you know what? I, 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 I want my money in my wallet and I want it now. Um, and, and I think that that's, and I think that's what's going to keep the system honest. But I do think that, I, I, I do think that layer three is is the is the next step. All right, well, I'm yet to be convinced on that one. All right, let's talk about FTX and we'll finish out. Okay. How, how did you take that all in this week? Because it's f- pretty fucking awful. Look, I, I have long believed that, um, I mean, it comes down to what we were just talking about. Like if if we're without utility, like this is all nonsense. It's just a casino. It's just a casino. And that's what I think this is. I think that we're seeing, um, like the reality is, is that like a whole bunch of easy money 
a lot of it pandemic related, actually. Like I think a lot of people took their stimulus checks and went and bought a bunch of, you know, these ridiculous cryptocurrencies with them. Um, and everything was up and to the right. And we, we saw a classic bubble form and the bubble started to pop and we're seeing, we're seeing the reckoning of that. And I've expected that, right? I mean, I, I, I mean, I've been saying this for a long time that, that I think that there's a lot of mania here. Um, I've said it on some, I said it on several podcasts like months ago that I thought that, that there's, there's way too much froth in this market. And I totally expect that there's going to be some shoe that drops at some point. I didn't know when it would happen. It turns out it happened, you know, four or five months later, but um, I'm not, I'm, one, I'm not surprised. Two, I'm very angry because I know a lot of innocent people are getting hurt by this. And it, it, it upsets me that, and in three, it upsets me that I feel like a lot of us are gonna get painted with that brush, even though we were trying very, very hard to not be that. We were trying really, really hard to work on what we saw as what was important, which was leveraging these technologies to build utility for people who are unserved by the financial system, underserved by the financial system, or in the case of what's happening around the world in some of these authoritarian countries, um, like providing a life or death tool um, to people to 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 be able to um, uh, literally survive, and so I saw it like that, and it's it's really really sad that um, we're going to have our work cut out for us over the you know the coming months and years um, to continue to educate people on the fact that you know Satoshi's vision, like a P two P payment system of uh, 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 Bitcoin is not the same thing as a big giant casino of like, you know, thousands and thousands of these, these tokens that who know he, who even knows what they were originally meant for. Um, were simply just, I mean, there's no way other way to put it, right? Like it, it was just, it's, it's hard to even compare it to like a casino because at least the casino, like you have some sense of like what the odds are and stuff. And there's like, there's like some sets of rules, but it was, it was just, it was just tulips. That's all it was. It was tulips. Well, I actually think now that's a very profound way to end this. So uh, I salute you, Mike Brock. I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed it too. I hope you can come back on the show sometime soon. Um, Jeremy's going to be really pissed off. I didn't push you on the DIDs, but fuck Jeremy. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Sorry, Jeremy. Um, I've really enjoyed following you on Twitter. I enjoy your work. I think uh, everything you're doing over at TB. When are you going to get a name? It's our name. That's just a dad joke. All right, listen, you take care. Anything you need, give me a shout. And yeah, hopefully we'll do this again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. What did you make of that? Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy having Mike on the show? Did you enjoy listening to his more anti-libertarian thesis? As I said in the intro, I actually agree with libertarians on a lot. I just struggle with the application or the idea that we could live in a voluntary libertarian society. Uh, and I've spoken to a lot of libertarians about this, and I've done my own research, I've read the antithesis to these, and yeah, I just have my doubts. I actually always come back to the idea, I just wish libertarians would be more politically active. I think if we had 
the political libertarian movement, we could reduce the size of government. We have this swing for left or right, but constantly allowing government to grow. I, I would love it if we had this pull from big to small, so the size of government is challenged. Anyway, that's just my thesis. It was great to have Mike on the show. Now, if you've got any questions about this, you've got any points you want to make, please do reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and I will get back to you. Okay, have a great weekend, and I'll see you all next week. <laughs>